Chapter 4, Part 2 Eastern Cascades, Northwest Pacific As always, regarding Matsutake natural and cultural history, we tell the story of pines. While in Japan the main story involving pines was the spread of red pine that came to be with deforestation practices, to learn about the American Matsutake we will have to take into consideration at least two different species of pines. Pinus ponderosa, best known as ponderosa pine, and Pinus contorta, best known as large polo pine. As we learned before, pines and Matsutake make a great partnership, because together they can transform poor soils and extreme environments into new sites for them to grow together. We know that Matsutake fruit bodies need pines to mushroom, but what about pines? What do pines need? Page 168 Pines need light. In the open, they can be aggressive invaders, but they decline in shade. Furthermore, pines are poor competitors in what are usually considered the best places for plants. Places with fertile soils, adequate moisture and warm temperatures. As a result, Pines have become specialists in places without those ideal conditions. Pine grow in extreme environments, cold high places, almost deserts, sand and rock. It is hard to think of a more extreme place than the Eastern Cascades when the pines start to grow there. The effects of the glacial age had still a great impact in the region when Mount Mazama, a volcanic complex located where today is the state of Oregon, had a great eruption some 7,500 years ago. The United States Geological Survey has referred to this event as the largest explosive eruption within the Cascades in the past million years. The eruption covered the region with lava, ashes and pumice, and, if there was any organic soil there, it was buried and sealed under the volcanic mass. There are still blocks of lava and pumice there, where almost nothing can grow. The pine started growing there, over pumice and ashes, in the cold, is somewhat a natural miracle. A miracle that is very likely to have something to do with mycelial mats and the activities of fungi. Both ponderosas and large poles managed to grow out of this extreme landscape, but only one of them seemed to have built a special bond with Matsutake. It is hard to point out exclusive relations between trees and fungi, because one single tree can be in close relation with dozens of fungi. At the same time, one species of fungus can relate with many trees in a single forest, even so, when it comes to Matsutake mushrooms in the Eastern Cascades, a clear preference shows itself, in a way that is almost an exclusive relation. In the Eastern Cascades, you are very likely to find pine mushrooms along with older lodgepoles. If there were lodgepoles in Oregon, 
ever since the last great eruption of Mount Mazama. Then how come Matsutake only appeared in abundance in Oregon forests by the second half of the 20th century? How come, we can ask, when white people arrived in that part of Northwest Pacific by the 19th century, the forests were dominated by enormous ponderosas? We will get there. From a landscape of extreme cold and blocks of love and pumice, more than 7,000 years ago. Fast forward to the last centuries and we would find a completely different scenario. Native Americans had slowly created a very different forest, with old and strong ponderosas dominating the landscape. The large pearls were there too, only much thinner and younger in what was the direct result of the fire regimes that were used in the care practices for the forest. When whites arrived in the Eastern Cascades by the 19th century, they found the forest crafted by its many inhabitants and indigenous fire regimes, but all they could see was the imposing ponderosas. Those who kick out the Native Americans from the blends they had shaped and take care of did not give the same attention to the large poles there. Anat Singh says she found a newspaper from 1910 stating the obvious no timber in the world can be logged more easily. In the 1930s, Oregon was the center of the United States wood industry. At this moment, the timber industry was so strong in Oregon that the U.S. Forest Service could only propose preservation policies that could be accepted by timber barons. Oregon timber was remarkable enough that it was remembered in pop culture. There is the song recorded in the 1950s that got famous in the voice of Johnny Cash called Lumberjack. It tells the story of a man who left a farm in Iowa because he heard Oregon Timber calling his name. Due to copyright issues, I cannot play the original song here, so I freely adapt and played myself a short part of it. I'm sorry in advance for that. I lived on a farm out the night away. I pulled the corn and I worked in the hay. Get trapped by a girl by I wiggle free. Heard the Oregon timber calling me. Back to the forest story. Unaware that the forests were built on fire regimes, the Forest Service made a mistake that would change everything. A mistake that the timber barons would happily agree to follow, thinking that the new policy would be the best for the business. Fire exclusion. Fire exclusion became an odd policy that was supposed to promote the preservation of the forest and the timber industry at once.
but they were both wrong. After World War II, the new technologies imposed a regime of clear-cutting, which is, until today, the most economically profitable form of logging. And, like everything driven by profit only, have important and prompt consequences on the environment. The idea was quite logical in their view. They would cut down decadent and old trees and plant fast-growing trees in its place. What could go wrong? If the plan was correct, the more they log out, the more productive the forest would be. By the 1970s, this was the standard practice. They found themselves wrong with terrible time. Page 196 What was wrong with the post-war vision? Ponderosa was increasingly lodged out, and it did not grow back, at least not readily. It was missing fire. The great ponderosas in their open parks had emerged together with Native American fire regions, in which frequent burning of the underbush encouraged browns for deer and berries for fall picking. Fire burned out competing conifer species while allowing the ponderosas to thrive. But whites drove out Native Americans in a series of wars and relocations. The Forest Service stopped not only their fires, but all fires. Without fires, flammable species, such as white fur and large pole, grew up under the ponderosas. When the ponderosas were removed through logging, these other species took over. The open character of the landscape disappeared as small trees grew in. Pure stem ponderosa became rare. The landscape looked less and less like the open ponderosa forest of the early 20th century, and less and less like a landscape of interest to the timber industry. In dispossessing native peoples from the lands they had made so inviting, white loggers, soldiers and foresters destroyed the park-like forests they had wanted so badly. As we can see, fires were a big part of those forests' ecologies. The main reason for this was that they affected very differently ponderosas and lodgepoles. Ponderosas have a good resistance to fire, so the fire makes their stem thinner, removes smaller trees, and burns more flammable trees such as lodgepole. And it is not that the fire was terrible for lodgepoles, as they could come up with a new crop of seedlings after the fire. But what matters the most here is the difference that the fire exclusion made to these trees. The ponderosas that weren't submitted to the fire regimes after replantation did not grow as fast and strong as the timber barons expected. On the other hand, the lodgepoles, flammable as they were, could grow old for the first time in many centuries. If you remember well, the 1970s were decisive for Japan pine forests, 
as the price of the timber that came from Indonesia was extremely cheap. There, it was one of the reasons why peasants and workers stopped the deforestation, the selected pines and Matsutake. And this was very bad for the red pines. The situation was even worse for the Oregon timber industry because their primary buyer was Japan. Incapable of competing with Indonesian timber prices and seeing that both the fire and the reputation policies completely failed, the business started to die. This terrible economic scenario also was pressured by the public opinion that was now more open to environmentalism and was against the destruction of the forest for producing timber. The Eldwood industry was left to die. Day by day, machines, houses, and a great amount of unprofitable wood became part of the abandoned forest. In the ruins of the industry, a new forest was starting to give its first breaths. And then Matsutake came. They don't like to grow on young trees, and the now 40 to 60 years old lodgepole became the perfect spot for them to grow. In other words, these older lodgepoles wouldn't even exist if it wasn't for the Forest Service fire exclusion back in the 1930s. Now, in the 80s, Matsutake was growing with lodgepoles, attracting people from many different places in the world for hunting them down. By the beginning of the 1990s, the Forest Service found out that the economic value of Matsutake picking in Eastern Cascades was at least the same as timber. And then, it was no longer about wood, at least not only about wood. Like Japan and the Meiji Restoration, Matsutake and their pine companions are now carefully selected. As we could see through these stories, the fact that Matsutake cannot be cultivated on an industrial scale is even more impressive when you know how many factors are involved in its natural spawn. They are great companions for us to see how history is natural and cultural at once. The dynamic of their disappearance in Japan and their appearance in the United States throughout the 20th century shows a very complex assemblage that involves humans in two different but equally important scales. On one hand, the story of Matsutake goes with a small-scale local praxis. This smaller scale is not only of space but of time as well. Matsutake emerged in Japan by the slow and persistent selection made by peasant deforestation and it became an important part of the cultural life of the Japanese. In Oregon, the mushrooms did not appear until the last four decades, largely because of the slowly crafted ponderosa forest, 
made by the Native Americans throughout the centuries. In both cases, the traditional disturbance was made mainly for basic needs such as fire and food, and in a way that the forest could be sustainable for centuries. For many centuries, slow and local human disturbance made forests with mushroom abundance in south-central Japan and mushroom absence in the Easter Cascades. But in the 20th century all this changed, even more in the second half of the 20th century. Matsutake became increasingly abundant in the Eastern Cascades and increasingly scarce in south-central Japan. On the other hand, then, the story of Matsutake goes with large-scale global praxis. First, the Ravenel's exploration of timber that impacted deeply forests in Japan as well as in the United States. Then, in a movement that resembles a lot colonialist praxis, rich countries outsourced their destruction needs by buying cheap raw material from poorer countries. The cheap wood made available through the rapid and massive destruction of forests of Indonesia and other poorer countries in Asia was the final stand that shaped the emergence and deception of Matsutake forests. It marked the beginning of the decaying of the timber industry in Oregon and helped to put an end to the selection of red pines and Matsutake in Japan. In both cases, old forests were abandoned and left to be in the ruins. In the United States, the abandoned and destroyed Ponderosa farm forests the once was a promised wood industry ended up unexpectedly selecting large poles and Matsutake. In Japan, the abandoned Matsutake forests put a stop to a domestic selection that was being made for many centuries, making red pines and, consequently, Matsutake disappear. But, perhaps what matters the most is that after World War II, the world population increased in an extreme accelerated manner, as well as the use of fossil fuels and consumption in general. All this comes with a cost. No wonder why many scientists today want to talk about the geological time called Anthropocene. What unites both the stories of Matsutake forests in Japan and in the US is the capitalist intensive and accelerated exploration of natural resources. These aggressive and accelerated forms of disturbance had turned into ruined forests, ecologies that were maintained for more than a thousand years through local practices of care. If history is a cemetery of worlds, it matters what we are doing next. Matsutake offers us a bag of stories on the possibility of life in capitalist ruins. We cannot be frozen by the increasing amount of finished worlds around us. Humankind and the planet might be in danger, indeed. But this is true for quite some time. Talking about the end of the world in a distant future is a privilege that not all can afford, as many humans and non-human folks are living worlds ending at this very moment. The world may end in a snap of fingers. 
But while this is nothing more than catastrophic speculation, we should leave this possibility to speculative science and the Avengers naturally. It is our responsibility to avoid cynicism and take care of the worlds that are already ruined or about to be. That our urgency is graver than the fear of an apocalyptic snap of fingers. Matsutake stories might show us a different way for dealing with ruins and worlds falling apart. Thinking of disturbance. If disturbing the worlds around us is inevitable, the question is then, what kind of disturbance has been promoted? And what kind of disturbance we are making from this moment on? The ways we relate with the worlds around us demand thinking. We must think. Letting nature alone or waiting for the technological or divine miracles will not help us this time, if ever did. It is a matter of responsibility and responsibility is a tricky thing. Like Donna Haraway taught us, responsibility is more like a responsibility, much more than just being responsible, but the very ability to respond. It's time to make a king with new partners and get to know other timelines. <laughs>